2: Toil no danger fearin', tuggin' out the flappin' sail, to the weather and Long we've tossed on the rolling main, now we're safe ashore, yeah. Live from the Connecticut River Museum in Essex, we're here to talk about shipwrecks. Let's hear it. <laughs> We have 1,700 people here today uh, crammed into a very small space. Did anybody bring a suction dredge? Anybody have, like, a, in the car a suction dredge? It's, it's going to limit some of our abilities to do some of the things we wanted to do. We are kind of hoping maybe somebody would have one. So uh, we're going to be talking today about... Shipwrecks, and we're going to define that term kind of broadly, too. We're going to uh, um, define it to include, at the end, the remains of Native American dugout canoes, for example, that are found in freshwater in, in Connecticut. Uh, but we've got a lot to talk about uh, here in Essex and to talk about uh, those things. Uh, well, we could start with a very old friend of mine. Not that he's very old, but uh, we've known each other a long time, and we're both very old at this point. Nick Bellantoni, uh, he's a emeritus Connecticut State Archaeologist who's investigated shipwrecks wrecks in Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River. Uh, Christopher Goodwin is president and CEO of R. Christopher Goodwin and Associates, which was contracted by the State Historic Preservation Office to survey shipwrecks along the Connecticut coast. Kevin McBride, University of Connecticut archaeology professor specializing in the Native American history of Connecticut and former director of research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum. So um, I think we should start. We're, We're sitting here in this beautiful museum. Uh, that is very, very close to the biggest maritime losses suffered by the American side in the War of 1812. So we should just talk a little bit about this. And Kevin, maybe just give us the backstory. So it was actually 1814, right, that uh, the British came here uh, to cause mayhem.
0: Yeah, correct. Probably in the spring of uh, 1814, they um, sent... uh a number of uh, ships launches up here with about 150 marines and sailors to destroy uh, shipping retaliation for Essentially asymmetrical warfare being conducted on the British warships that were patrolling the sound.
2: (laughs) No, asymmetrical. Well, I mean, basically, you know, I always feel like in the history of Connecticut in those early years, um, you know, if you could get some money out of it, you could get people a lot more interested uh, in fighting. So we had privateers here, right? They had letters of bark where they could go and seize British ships and sell them at auction. They did, but in this, in this context,
0: the uh, U.S. government in its wisdom decided one of the best ways to uh, bring the uh, war to the British was they would offered a bounty for anybody who could sink a British warship, and they would give them half the worth. So you can imagine every person <laughs> who had a boat or an idea along the Connecticut coast uh, was sending fire ships, torpedoes, it set her out to uh, try and sink these British warships, and they came close a couple of times.
2: It was sort of early Lotto. It was before Powerball. Exactly. If you could launch a Powerball exactly. into a boat uh, and sink it, uh, you could get some money. Um, so what we wind up with is this raid where uh, 25 boats, at least, uh, American boats, were burned? 28. 28, wow. Yeah. Uh, most of those were actually salvaged later. So they burned them, they seized
0: two privateers, right? The Anaconda, and I can't remember the other um, the
2: other ship's name. Does anybody have it at the tip of their tongue? Because I think I can come up with it here. The Eagle, Eagle. that the is Eagle. correct. Who said the Eagle? Amy, All right, you win course. some kind of award. Yeah. I don't know what. Um, so, um, you know, Nick, one of the things, after something like this, obviously there's some good places to look for... The remains of these ships, but let's say I'm dredging around or something, and I pull some hunk of wood up. I mean, how do you figure out whether you can tie some fragment of a boat to something like uh, what happened here in eighteen fourteen
3: Well, that's very difficult. I mean, it depends on how diagnostic the elements are, um, you know like a a, a knee uh, an l shaped uh, wood. Um, to help secure the deck to the ribs was uncovered here, found in the in the, in the the water here that had been charred. Mm-hmm. So the idea, well, one suggestion was that maybe it w- might have been one of the vessels that had been uh, burnt here. But it's very hard to authenticate that, you know, you, you, you find a lot of things. But you do the best you can in terms of what science could be done and, and, and the history behind it. But often very difficult to isolate a single artifact and put it toward one historic event.
2: Right. So, one of my favorite things about the timeline that they have here at the River Museum is, so the British raiding party, they come come up, and I think it's like 3.30 in the morning, and they burn some boats, and then the light comes up, and they can see more boats to burn. And they burn all these boats, and then they're, like, retreating downward. And at one point, the American commander uh, gave them the opportunity to surrender. <laughs> you know, And they're like, no, we don't think so, actually. We just, <laughs> just burned, like, all of your boats, basically, and then stole the rest. No, we're not surrendering. That's not going to happen. So, Chris, I know that you've done, I mean, we're in the second segment, we're going to talk a lot about some of the exploration you've didn't, done out in the Sound. Have you
1: been looking around the the area here for, for some of the remains of these boats? So, you know, that's a question, right? right. Where, where did those vessels go? Is there anything left of them? Um, the answer is that they probably, as Kevin said, were largely salvaged. Think about it. 1814, metal artifacts, what we'd call artifacts today, were very rare, took a long time to uh, to make them. Good ship timbers, if it could be recycled, would be used to recycle. But what Kevin didn't say, and I know he knows because I got it out of his report for the battlefield protection outfit, was that the British also burned uh, everything that they didn't carry away out of the uh, shipyards here in Essex. So they walked off with you know, cordage and naval stores, everything that was useful to them, and then they burned the the shipyards and the factories and the work sheds and destroyed the shipwright's tools, uh, which I think probably put a uh, a higher premium on uh, salvage of of the vessels. We surveyed the whole river all the way down to Old Lyme and uh, didn't see anything that would indicate uh, that any of the uh, ships are in the river. We found a lot of other interesting stuff, could see every pier and dock that uh, has uh, subsided into the water over the years, Uh, tires that, that, uh, you know, were used to protect vessels at those docks. But there was no magnetometer targets that would indicate any concentrations of metal. So if there are timbers out there, they have no magnetic signature. Mm -hmm. We couldn't image them in side-scan sonar, so they're subsided below the, uh, you know, the sediment in the river. But I think it also um, should be pointed out, that the area immediately behind this fine uh, fine museum was uh, basically made land, uh, and the old piers uh, sit right behind us here. Hmm. And uh, back in the eighteen nineties, there were nineteen uh, eighties rather, there were some. Uh, That's a problem with archaeologists. We mess up time. Uh, There was some archaeology done back there, and the original piers were located. And so I think it's also possible there may be some remnants of those vessels behind us inside the the last terrace of the old Connecticut River Channel.
2: So uh, Nick, you know, he just used the word, it's possible, and I think that's a word that archaeologists wind up having to use a lot. For example, in 2011, there were some uh, uh, nets dragging for sturgeon here in the river. They did come up with some old wood that... Could conceivably, maybe, be from the young anaconda or one of those boats, but that's another—it's possible kind of thing.
3: Well, it, you're talking in this case with that that knee that came up is basically an isolated find. Yeah. What it would take is. It wasn't a, an a actual archaeological knee. exploration. Sh- you down. should
2: probably point out that it wasn't an actual knee. It was like. A no, no,
3: that's right. It, it's a piece of wood. We call it a knee uh, from the vessel that kept the deck together from mm. the uh, attached to the ribbing. But yeah, it would take more of an archaeological investigation, you know, a full scale going down in the area and recovering as much information as possible. So we never say impossible, but... You know, a lot of times the things we find are far more mundane than, you know, the the more exciting mm-hmm. historic events that we like to think of.
2: Right. So, uh, in his old office, Nick had a very large collection of the other kinds of knees, uh, which he would have been happy to show you. So, Kevin, since we're here in Essex, and so Essex does this thing every year, they have this Losers Day parade where they... they reflect upon and acknowledge this enormous naval loss, really the biggest loss, uh, uh, naval loss of that war. And there is also this kind of idea that has been around uh, that that maybe Essex didn't put up much of a fight. And we should say that one of the things is, as the British came in uh, off the sound, they thought they were going to have to take a fort right there down there in Old Saybrook. I think there was nobody there, <laughs> there in the fort, so that was not a big problem. But there has been some rethinking of this, right? There's been some finds that maybe suggest that somebody did put up a fight uh, during those hours. There was, in fact, the
0: uh, uh, Americans did respond maybe not quickly. Um, I think the, the local militias in Essex sort of basically decided it was in their best interest to retreat after the British fired a few volleys at them from their launches. But Overnight, as you pointed out, this started at 3 a.m. by morning, you know, regular Army, Marines, probably sailors from Fort Trumbull and local militias actually established several gun emplacements. And they, you know, uh, gave the British a pretty hard time as they were going back downriver and had mild
2: success. Two dead, two injured, we think. Uh, Yeah, yeah. 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 It wasn't a lot, but... It sounded good yeah they gave him a little bit of yeah. a fight anyway it wasn't it's not a happy story and there's no way we can spin it that way so I, I think maybe we can segue from that a little bit just to have a sense of Chris maybe I can start with you I think of the Connecticut River as this place where if I were to walk into the river at Chester we have a state representative from Chester here in the audience I could probably walk pretty far out and <laughs> into the river before it went over my head. But it was not ever thus, right? In other words, during a lot of the periods we'll be talking about today, this was a deep water river that a deep water boat could go up and down.
1: Also, there are areas that are deeper now than there were then. And uh, just below Essex, there was a, a fairly major marsh island that's not there anymore. So the rivers are changeable and the uh, and the channels move. Um, obviously, when we're talking about, you know, vintage war of 1812, uh, there wasn't a lot of active channel maintenance and uh, not a lot of private dredging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, rivers are, are uh, very fluid environments. You know, up by Everton, where it comes into the river, there's a piece of a bridge that came down in a storm in the water. Um, and uh, so the channels migrate, uh, shoals develop, uh, and uh, rivers move around. I mean,
2: and Nick, I think it's a thing we tend to forget. That I mean, if you go to some of the wonderful exhibits that are right here in this building, you'll see these steam steamships. I think they're screw-driven uh, steamships that could carry 350 people. There were big boats doing river commerce in this river, probably starting when? Maybe around 1825,
3: something oh, like that. Oh, yes, going up and down the traffic here would have been enormous. But also, you know, not only the, the ship traffic, uh, but also the, the ship building Mm-hmm. There were many shipbuilding enterprises going all the way up to uh, Hartford uh, uh, and all the way down, uh, all along the coast. And a lot of those, you know, we've seen are probably has some minor uh, archaeological visibility, but very deeply stratified now under a lot of silt and so forth. And like Chris said, the, the rivers are me- the river meanders, it moves around at least north of Middletown, and then it gets like a fjord when it gets down here, there's not much movement, but up up further, it's, uh, it really moved around. But a lot of shipbuilding, a lot of traffic, you know, these vessels were the highways.
2: Yeah, and Kevin, maybe you can also extend our thinking about that out into the Sound. I mean, I picture Long Island Sound as being full of navigation hazards, like boulders and stuff in there. I mean, what's it, what's it like on the bottom of the Sound, and, and what kind of hazards does that did that? Present to ships. Uh,
0: I mean, there's a number of hazards, and the in the bottom varies quite a bit. I mean, if you look at the logbooks, British logbooks for the British raid in Essex and the Battle of Stonington, uh, they're constantly taking uh, soundings because the you know the, the the bottom was so unpredictable, and there was a lot of unreported you know reefs and shoals and things of that nature. Connecticut River is quite unique, and it's the only major river in the United States without a large city. Uh, At its mouth. Mm -hmm. And that's because of the, you know, the sandbars and the shoals that sort of prevented that. So the shipping did go up and down here quite a bit and into the sound, but it was always, uh, you needed a local pilot. Mm
2: -hmm. And, you know, with, with almost daily knowledge. I want to talk a little bit, uh, Chris, about the survey that you got hired to do after Storm Sandy. I don't know why the storm occasioned this, but we're certainly an interest in knowing what kind of shipwrecks there were down there.
1: And also trying to assess the damage of uh, a cyclonic storm on important shipwreck sites. And it was all part of the uh, uh, Hurricane Sandy Relief Act, uh, which gave money to all of the federal agencies, including the National Park Service, which then doled out research funds to the various State Historic Preservation Offices. And one of the missions that we had for the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office was to do remote sensing surveys in areas that had previously recorded shipwrecks that were important uh, historically to uh, uh, the maritime history of Connecticut. It was a seafaring state. And uh, remains such now, like out of New London for the Navy. And goes way back. I mean, I got fascinated in Stonington, where where Kevin hails from. You know, with the phenomenal history of, of ship captains like Nathaniel uh, Brown Palmer, after whom Palmer Land, Palmer Peninsula, Palmer Archipelago, and so on in Antarctica are named, uh, because he was the first American to see them in 1820 on a sealing expedition. Stonington became a a, a port of trade and got a customs house in 1842. Captain Palmer was the co-inventor, if you will, of the clipper ships. And he sailed to Hong Kong in 111 days out of Stonington, pretty cool. And so that history, that maritime focus, that maritime history uh, was ubiquitous across the uh, across the coast of, of Connecticut. Um, and as, uh, as Nick mentioned, the shipbuilding industries along the Connecticut River, Chester that I know, uh, that you know, um, Essex, Middletown. Middletown made a lot of boats. And so the whole history of maritime uh, uh, endeavor uh, has representation, archeologically, in the shipwrecks of the rivers and in, in along the Long Island Sound. So our endeavor was to select areas of high probability for shipwreck sites and do remote sensing surveys. We started with proton magnetometer, cesium season, season gradiometer, and side-scan sonar surveys, and then we identified a lot of shipwrecks. And then we went back with a, a next generation technology called multi-beam echo sounder, which allows us to do precise measurements and render the shipwrecks in three dimensions and uh, took a detailed look at 17 of those shipwrecks. And we've written a report and recommended creation of an underwater archaeological district in Fishers Island Sound, National Register nomination of uh, several of the steamships that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. and got a really neat picture, if you will, of the uh, evolution of of shipping although we didn't find any of those early canoes that uh Uh, Kevin's familiar with from Mashantucket Pequot. Nick is familiar with because they don't have the kinds of signatures they won't pick up in the remote sensing array. No metal. What
2: we're going to do right now is take a quick break here. I'm getting some anxious signals from the team over there. Uh, We're going to grab a quick break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk about some very specific uh, ships, boats, uh, and Kevin's also going to tell us uh, quite a bit more about uh, some of the Native American uh, finds uh, out there. So let's take a quick break. We're uh, here at the Connecticut River Museum. We'll be right back.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare.
2: All right, we're live from the Connecticut River Museum in beautiful Essex with a wonderful audience, an audience of thousands here today. I'm not going to restate all their credentials, but with us are Nick Bellantoni, Christopher Goodwin, Kevin McBride, uh, about as expert a panel as you could possibly have for, the, for a conversation like this one. So. Um, I, you know, I want to sort of pick up where we left off, and but I think it's sort of maybe useful to talk about very specific finds, specific ships. So, Chris, as you do this inventory uh, of these kind of almost undersea, underwater uh, graveyards of ships, you find all kinds of things, but just maybe w- let's pick one because that's of interest. Uh, tell us about the Isabel.
1: Okay, so the Isabel was a, uh, a steamship with a walking beam engine. It was made in 1894 in Noank for the A.J. Smith uh, Company out of Bridgeport. It sailed with cargo and passengers up and down Long Island Sound uh, for 21 years until it hit a rock on the evening of September 28, 1915. And that rock tore a hole in the hull and she rapidly began to take on water and Captain George Rowland intentionally beached the uh, a steamer on a on cow reef to keep it from sinking, but hopes of floating it the following day were dashed by a heavy storm event, and down she went. NOAA, which maps the seabed uh, routinely, came up with a postulated location uh, for the Isabel. Back in those days, we used something called Loran Sea, which was based on uh, fixed radio waves, land based radio waves. And now we have GPS satellites. Um, so we found the Isabel not where it was expected. It was a fortuitous find in an adjacent area, about a half a, of a nautical mile away, and uh, located it with both a magnetometer because it was a steamship, it had a lot of metal, and uh, got some images of it with a side scan sonar. And then in order to assess its condition and see what was left, we went back with the multi-beam echo sounder, which gave us marvelous three-dimensional renderings.
2: Uh, Chris, I think some people are listening and going, magnetometer, GPS, sonar, what about just diving down there and taking a look at it? Uh, Kevin, maybe you can give people a sense of what visibility is like if you're diving down looking for something in Long Island Sound. Close your eyes. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you gotta do. It's like if you put your arm out in front of you, can you you see? Maybe two feet. Maybe you can see the end of your fingers. Maybe not, though. So, yeah. So, this is one of the reasons we're using all this kind of high-tech stuff. Now, Nick... As a completely ignorant member of the public, I think, well, let's get the usable up there, and we'll just park it over here, tie it up at the dock, and uh, here at the River Museum, and people can go look at it. But I guess it's not that easy. It's far some... from
3: not that, that easy. But <laughs> you know, in terms of the, the, the displacement of the vessel, but you know, you bring something out of the water now, you're responsible for it for perpetuity, and yeah. you've got to conserve and and take care of these artifacts. And uh, you know, I've worked with a lot of wreck divers, and uh, you know, I go into their houses, and in their garage and, and basements are just full of this rotting metal that they had decided they had it to take up, just to prove, I guess, that they were there. And um, you know, we would like to see things left in place so that they could be properly handled, but. Once you take something out of the water, just like in terrestrial archaeology, when you take it out of the ground, you're responsible for it, and and that could be multi,
2: multi-million dollars uh, into the future. So I guess we'll be leaving the Isabel down there, uh, Chris?
1: It's in really great shape. I think uh, we've recommended that the State Historic Preservation Office uh, determine it immediately eligible for listing on the National Register of Historic Places. Uh, it is eligible because the entire engine and the walking beam uh, engine uh, is intact, the smokestack, everything is there, and uh, it's in fabulous shape. But the metal is like a 60-ton potato chip because it's graphitized. So if you move it, you destroy it. Yeah. Or as Nick said, you spend 10, 15 million dollars uh, restoring it. Um, we've done that once, and federal agencies are really the only uh, entities that seem to have the money to be able to afford that, and they only do it in very rare occasions. Anyway, the walking beam engine that was built in NOAC in 1894 to me is particularly interesting because it's a curious, purely American invention. It was made for nearshore and inshore waters.
2: Was it a side paddle?
1: It had two two side wheels. Side side wheels, okay, yeah. the evolution then went to propeller.
2: So let's talk about a few other things we're probably not ever going to get back. Uh, Nick, tell us about the the old Cornfield uh, lightship. There's a model up there of I think a newer Cornfield uh, lightship. But
3: yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it was a lightship built at the beginning of the 20th century. It's claim to fame. It was the first lightship electrified by Thomas Edison and his in his company, um, and it served as a kind of a floating uh, what do you, how do you say, a lighthouse where it yeah. would help navigation during storms. I don't know how well it worked, because in 1919 it collided with a tanker and and sank uh, out in the Long Island Sound off of uh, Old Saybrook here. And uh, for many years uh, there was a search for it, but it wasn't until uh, about 15 or so years ago we were able to find it with side-scanning sonar, sent divers down. It's in a very deep um, part of the Sound, uh, over 90 feet down, if not more. And uh, they were able to... um, find the ship's belt and make a positive identification but uh, the, the, the side scan sonar images of that vessel are just incredible because the vessel is complete and it, it's laying on the bottom of the sound on its hull so it's standing up so to speak oh, wow and so you could actually the, the side scan actually showed the shadows of the masts, mm-hmm. and so pretty remarkable it is now uh registered as a state archaeological preserve uh, mm. because of its significance
2: it's, it's also federally protected it's right? federal property That's so don't exactly go, try, right. don't, was don't go diving Coast down Park. there and trying this guy over here That's right. they, you know, you get, stay, they, they will uh, arrest your behind go, you can go
3: down and enjoy it but don't remove anything
2: right and so we also just quickly tell us about william gillette's aunt polly this isn't william gillette's actual aunt polly we i don't know where she is she's not down on, this is a boat named after her this whip. was a
3: yacht and it was a, it was a beautiful piece about 44 feet and uh, William Gillette, the, the, the prominent uh, actor and uh, silent movie star famous for his portrayals of Sherlock Holmes, uh, the first real portrayals of Sherlock Holmes at the turn of the century um, he did a lot of entertaining and he lived on the yacht. He, in fact uh, Albert Einstein was one of the people that came and shared the, the luxuries of this yacht. He lived in the yacht while he was building his castle up on the hill, and uh, a term, by the way, he hated, but uh, he was building his home up on the hill. And um, when he um, finished and moved in um, very shortly thereafter, the, the Aunt poly mysteriously burned at, at its moor. And uh, you could still see it today. If you, if you go to the Gillette's Castle State Park, north of uh, the, the Hadline Ferry mm-hmm. that goes across the ferry, um, just north of that. It's still sitting there. It is basically exposed during low oh, tide, yeah. but completely uh, covered with, with high, high tide. Please do not remove anything. Uh, again, it is listed as a state archaeological uh, preserve, but you can actually still see the Aunt Polly. Uh,
2: it would have been a good Sherlock Holmes mystery, what happened to the Aunt <laughs> Polly, except that it might have actually... There's a whole theory that Gillette may be... Well, they're a joke, I think, that Gillette, <laughs> in order to help pay he would for would have the made castle. a great
3: archaeologist, by the yeah, way. Yeah.
2: So, Kevin, we have to talk about... In in order to explain some of the Native American exploration that you and Bob Ballard have done, I think it's important for people to understand, as I did not, what Long Island Sound was. In other words, we think of Long Island Sound as being the thing that we experience now, but the history of Long Island Sound is very different. What what did it used to be? Well, probably in the last...
0: You know, at the end of the last glacial period, probably 15,000 years ago, uh, it would have been a, a huge freshwater lake. Yeah. And then with rising sea level, bre- you know, breach the, you know, where the Race Rock is now, and eventually uh, the western end of Long Island Sound too. So beginning about 10,000 years ago, we began to see its development as, a, as an estuary. And then probably by 9,000, you're looking at you know what it was yeah so there would have been people living all along the shores of that estuary which could have been you know thousands of meters south of the current shoreline and there's probably thousands of archaeological sites that are now buried mm. uh, under the silt and uh, sediments
2: so explain now explain the kind of exploration that you did i mean at one point you were underwater for what four Days looking for stuff, right?
0: Yeah, we, we were actually exploring south of Long Island in a in the uh, we started out using the N R one, the Navy's nuclear smallest and deep diving nuclear submarine. Um, so we were out there for three four day stints, mm-hmm. never again. <laughs> and uh, the idea was this submarine sinks to the bottom and it roll actually drives on truck tires.
1: Mm. When wow.
0: scientists are looking throughout portholes just above about a meter above the surface. It's sort of like doing a terrestrial survey. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to look for landforms that may be intact from you know 12 to 15,000 years ago that uh, potentially could yield evidence of you know
2: early Native American sites. Scott Breedy, the producer of this episode is for some reason or rather obsessed with the idea of you and Bob Ballard eating lean cuisines uh, while you're underneath the water i gotta tell you the one thing
0: (laughs) you know the food was it is what it is but probably the most important discovery i made Mm. on those trips is i don't think most people realize there's eight different kinds of klondike bars oh i uh, (laughs) thought i was not aware of that
2: um and and only three of them available to the earliest native americans too so (laughs) um so, I mean, give us give us a little bit more of a sense. I mean, obviously, this is a huge, comprehensive uh, survey or investigation. Um, but do, do we know more? Do we know more as a result? Do we know more about kind of what's out there archaeologically? Um,
0: we're beginning to. Mm-hmm. And the idea was to you know find the evidence of early Native American occupation, which may have predated you know what is what was then considered the earliest. Native cultural tradition in the, in the Americas the Clovis. So now we know there's pre-Clovis sites that predate 12,000, some of them going back to 20,000 years ago, perhaps even earlier. So the idea was to find one of those sites, you need to first identify an intact landform. That was the first phase. The second phase would be to um, run, uh, you know, side-scan sonar and sub-bottom profiling, which basically... You know, the sub-bottom gives you a sense of the topography beneath the sediments. Mm -hmm. And then the final phase, the third phase would be to ground truth those with cores, which Mm -hmm. we did. And the last phase would be to sample those landforms to, you know, find some artifacts. So I've had a couple of grad students since then who have actually found some pretty early sites. Not as early as we were looking for, but... Um, they have found early sites off Martha's Vineyard and off uh, off New Hampshire that date between seven and nine thousand years ago.
2: I think also it's so hard for people to picture the things that we're talking about and the history of this place. And so, one thing that's great is fishermen are always finding stuff, right? They're always like down there, they're dragging nets around, they're just scrambling around on the banks. And so, what they used to do is then like, when they would find something, they call Nick Bell and Tony. So, didn't some fishermen find a mastodon molar at one yeah, point? Yeah, well, you know, as Kevin was mentioning, with the rising sea levels. Uh,
3: you know the the coastline and the, and the post pleistocene after the glaciers it was farther out much farther out so one day i got a call at, at the at the office up at yukon and a fisherman had said you know he, he was out in the atlantic ocean dredging his fish uh beyond long island sound and it's got something in his nets that he, he couldn't identify it was rutted pitted and it looks like it had roots and he wasn't quite sure what he was looking at so i uh, i said "Well, will bring it up to you con we'll take a look and what it was was we were able to identify it as a molar of um uh, a mastodon uh, from the ice age and uh and i tried to explain to him what that was and he said what was the elephant doing in the ocean <laughs> and I, I had to explained to him when that elephant was there that wasn't ocean; that was dry land. It was a coastal plain. It's just like, as Kevin said, he's looking for sites that might be associated with that that go back very early. So it was, you know, we gave him a lesson in sea rise uh, levels uh, to this day. But yeah, the, the those even paleontological sites are out there.
2: So I mean, so it's nothing to think about as you're, you know, out there on your jet ski or something on Long Island Sound. <laughs> There's to be mastodons walking around there. Uh, where's the where's the mastodon molar today? What happened to it? Is the mast- Mastodon Muller, part of the large Nick Bellantoni private collection of... Both. No, 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 no. Yeah.
3: It uh, okay. it ended up at the University of Connecticut. We do have one of the... Uh, uh, our Museum of Natural History up at Yukon has uh, the most complete uh, mastodon ever recovered from the state of Connecticut. It's uh, almost uh, two-thirds of a complete animal. Uh, but uh, no, that's it's part of the collections now.
2: So um, I think we have to take another break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to find out more about dugout canoes. Uh, we're going to tell you about uh, all kinds of stuff like that. So stay tuned. We'll be back after the proverbial this. Hey, hey, hey. John, carry him along. I had built a ship of thousand tons. Carry him me. to me. his burying ground. Don't why, me. I, I used you stooge me. me? Walk him along, John, carry him along. Don't why, why, you stooge me? Carry him to, to, me. to me. his burying ground. Not long and We're back. We're live from the beautiful River Museum, the Connecticut River Museum in Essex with this great audience here of thousands, thousands of people. And uh, joining me, uh, Nick Ballantoni, Emeritus, Connecticut State Archaeologist, uh, Christopher Goodwin, President and CEO of R. Christopher Goodwin and Associates, contracted by the State Historic Preservation Office to survey shipwrecks along the Connecticut coast, Kevin McBride, University of Connecticut Archaeology Professor, specializing in the Native American history of Connecticut, former director of research at the Mashantucket Pequot Museum. So, um, Kevin, you know, we talk about this Uh, kind of investigation and and we talk about Long Island Sound and the coastline and and parts of the Connecticut River, but there's also quite a bit of stuff in lakes, particularly stuff dating back to uh, Native American times. Tell us a little bit about what's been found uh, in the way of dugout canoes and and that sort of thing. So Native people use two different kinds of canoes. uh, For shallow
0: water, dugout canoes are maybe 18 feet long, 12 feet long. Then they also had larger ocean-going canoes that were uh, 80 feet long, could hold 40 people, and they were very different construction. They had prows fore and aft, and they had a bit of a keel. But it's not uncommon to find these dugout canoes in lakes and ponds throughout New England. Many have been found... In Connecticut, and they're usually found by uh, sport divers. And the reason they're in these ponds is they're they were often sunk by the owner, loaded with rock, and sunk periodically so they wouldn't dry out. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, they're still there. So occasionally, we've raised them. As Nick pointed out, it's an enormously expensive effort to conserve them. It's like you know, the wood is like rice paper. Uh,
2: consistency.
0: But um, there are many that we know of that are still there that we just haven't bothered to bring them up.
2: Right. And these almost have to be fun. Well, Chris, you were saying that you can use all of the kind of equipment that you're talking about to go steamship, lightship, but you're not going to go canoe, right? It's not right. going to have any kind of signature on that.
1: Right. Unless you're blind, dumb, lucky, and you find one that's sticking up out of the sediment and, uh, you know, has enough vertical relief so that you can see it.
2: Mm. So it might even be worth uh, mentioning how painstaking you really do have to be. In other words, to get one of these canoes up and out, you have to effectively put it in water first before you bring it up. Is that right?
0: Yeah, you have to build a container, water, you know, watertight container, and keep it in water. Otherwise, it'll basically just fall apart. You know, you can imagine the the weight of all that water. Um, and you get on a flatbed truck, you take it to where you want to get it, and then you get a series of pumps, and you begin to, you know, add uh, plasticine solution to the water, and over time, it eventually replaces uh, the water and the cells, the wood cells, and, you know, with plastic, and it, it becomes uh, firm enough to sort of move around.
2: We started this conversation out with a, uh, a war story from Essex. Were these um, canoes also used as kind of Battle, transportation? Uh, the large ones were. Yeah. Um, there's plenty of uh,
0: you know, uh, mention of them during the Pequot War of 1636-37 where they would, you know, um, Pequots would be using them for communication, for travel, mm-hmm. for raiding. Um, they attacked uh, several uh, English
2: ships with mm-hmm. them as well. Mm-hmm. They were
0: pretty formidable
2: craft. Yeah. I should say, just to declare my own interest in this next topic, so my mother uh, came from a town called Dana, Massachusetts. And Dana, Massachusetts was one one of four towns that was uh, identified, evacuated, and then... then flooded as part of the Quabbin Reservoir. And so my mother was fond of pointing out that her, her past was underwater. And I guess you could, uh, back in the day, get a canoe and, and canoe over it and look down and see hitching posts and things like that. Not that my mother came from a time when there were just hitching posts but, and, and, and horses. So Nick, we've got a few of those in Connecticut too, right? It's our recent past underwater, w- where would that be found?
3: Yeah, no, basically what we've seen with the, with the rise of um, reservoir systems and so forth, the flooding of rivers and so forth, actually inundating old colonial and historic towns, mm-hmm. industrial centers. Um, we've had situations where they've had to remove entire cemeteries to higher water uh, in order to clear the away. But sometimes when the reservoirs are, are set lower you can mm-hmm. actually see uh, you know the ruins of some of the towns uh, that were there what's at Hampstead Hollow I know you know a yeah, lot about that yeah, yeah absolutely up and even uh, you know up in Bark Hampstead the, mm-hmm. the whole town was moved up there to make way for the reservoir system to provide water for the for the Hartford area so it's now become kind of an underwater archaeology uh, type of endeavor but We have whole towns that are are completely submerged now.
2: When you say it's an underwater archaeology endeavor, once again, this is by, I assume a lot of this stuff is very protected at this point.
3: Oh, no, absolutely. You know, it would take a good research design to want to go back in and, uh, uh, to do anything, but um, you know, in, in many respects, parts of those uh, communities are still preserved uh, under the water.
2: Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm reading from the exhaustive uh, research of Scott Breedy: a ghost bridge in the Colbrook River Lake, an old metal bridge in the middle of West Thompson Lake, and a house at the bottom of Gardner Lake. And you'd have to really want that house back to uh, want to pull it up uh, out of the. But we don't very don't, don't go diving for any of those things either. This guy over here. Uh, just just dive in Rhode Island. You can take their stuff, okay? All right, so, um, okay, it's time to do the Captain Cook thing. Captain Kidd
3: uh, and and the rest of them, well, in my tenure as a state archaeologist, uh, people have shown me at least seven sites where uh, Captain Kidd supposedly had buried his treasure, and mm. they range from everywhere, from the Thimble Islands in Brantford to Charles Island and Milford, uh, uh, other points along the coast, even far inland as Voluntown and in Hampton, up in the Northeast Hills. Uh, kid was hired by the, the British government to actually go after pirates, so to speak, uh, privateers, and supposedly had become one himself. And he always claimed he never had a, a treasure, but he, he was being wanted uh, by the Brits, and uh, he came through Long Island. He had uh, friends in Milford, Connecticut, and that's why Charles Island was, uh, was chosen, Gardner's Island. Mm. Supposedly, he dumped his treasure at various places, and then was captured up in Boston. Eventually, uh, hung in in London, his his body hung from the, uh, the at the mouth of the Thames River. He always uh, he, he basically told them at the end uh, to prevent his being uh, hung. If you go back with me, I'll show you where I buried all these things. <laughs> but the, the British authorities wouldn't buy into it. They needed to make an example for pirates, and he became one. So uh, anyhow, uh, people have repeatedly come back uh, saying that they have ideas about uh, where Captain Kidd buried his treasure, but Mm. nothing was ever found. Charles Island would have been great because that's state property and the governor Mm. would have been thrilled if we had been able to come up with something like that. But uh, uh, we've had even uh, salvagers who have come up from Florida and other parts seeking permits from the State Historic Preservation Office and our office to uh, conduct uh, "quote unquote" excavations looking for the treasure, but they never could satisfy us with uh, a proper research design, so we never approved any of those. But if it's out there, it's still out there. But um, you know, pirates spent their money, right? And uh, you know, it's just like having a bank account and never using it. So uh, I'm not a big uh, I'm not big into treasures,
2: right? I, I I think there was at one point a plan to have tolls. Uh, in the Connecticut River for the pirate ships. You know, get get some of the money back that way. Uh, just so they go under the gantry, they've gotta pay. Chris, are you shaking your head because you don't want people to go around looking for treasure?
1: Let me just say that when you're talking about shipwrecks and other archeological sites, mm-hmm. these are the tangible vestiges of American history. Right. I think that divers, amateur divers, have a tremendous role to play in helping to identify archaeological sites shipwrecks that merit consideration to be put on the national or the state Connecticut state register of uh, of historic places so that they can be preserved for posterity not every shipwreck is going to be eligible for either of those two registers national or Connecticut but occasionally there are shipwrecks and there are no doubt undiscovered shipwrecks out there that are transcendentally important in terms of what they can tell us and what themes and uh, and events they illustrate um, that merit such preservation. Divers get in the water, uh, they go looking for things, and they usually identify things uh, of, of interest not only to their diving clubs, to each other, um, but occasionally they're going to stumble across something that uh, is really or swim across something that's really important. So I would urge close coordination when that happens with the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office and with the state archaeologist who then have the uh, ability to take a look with the diver and see if this is something that's really important that merits preservation. I think that, uh, you know, there's traditionally been some sort of a a psychological separation between sport divers and um, and archaeologists, perhaps related to piracy, but but I think that there's a natural uh, uh, element of commonality there. These are people who actually appreciate American history, or prehistory in the case of the dugouts that uh, Kevin was talking about. And uh, I would think that uh, the divers are, are kind of a, uh, an exploratory arm of, uh, of preservation should they choose to, to participate. And I know that the people, the state archaeologists and the people at the uh, Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office would be very interested in taking reports, asking folks to fill out a site form, giving them a location, and it's probable that those areas actually have NOAA imagery at least. Mm. So they've already got a geographic information system they can go to, they can pull it up and see what the heck it looks like. It may not be a a named wreck. It uh, may be one that's misidentified. It may be a wreck that's identified in the wrong position somewhere else. There are a lot of those out there because the technology's come a long way.
2: I mean, part of the problem, Nick, is that there are divers who want to find something and put it over their fireplace right so the last thing they're going to do is call you or anybody that they're supposed to call
3: no that's right and we and, and like chris said we, we've made efforts to coordinate with the diving community so we can work together and understand you know one of the arguments i made to them is you keep taking stuff out of the water there's not going to be anything for your your, your kids and your grandkids if they want to enjoy the, the hobby but you're, you're destroying a cultural resource that. Like Chris said, it could be eligible for the National Register and very significant. I once had a case where uh, working with a group of divers one took me to one of their their houses uh, to show me some uh, information that they had about a wreck that they had found. And uh, the owner of the house huffed and puffed, and you could see he was going through some stress, and I was wondering what was wrong with him. And then finally he said, okay, and he brought me to his living room, and there was a bookshelf and he pulled the side of the bookshelf out, and behind the bookshelf was all of this um, these artifacts uh, from a wreck that he had uh, mm. dove on and took. And I expect, I said, w- why, why was it behind the bookshelf?" And he said, "Well, uh, I was always afraid if the state archaeologist ever came to my house, he would take it. <laughs> I said, "Well, what'd you show it to me for?" <laughs> but, but, you know, we tried to work closely with them. In fact, the, the direct diving community is the one that helped us find a, a corn, uh, cornfield uh, light point. Yeah, I
2: mean, if you can get everybody working together, fishermen and divers and archaeologists and historical preservation groups, if everybody works together, it's great. If people decide to go off on their own, not so great. You know, one thing I forgot to ask about um, is, uh, you know, I just mentioned fishermen, divers, people who find stuff. It hadn't occurred to me that pilots see things, but sometimes pilots going over the river will we'll spot something in the river? That's right. We had a pilot uh, come to us um, oh, many years ago uh,
3: flying over the Connecticut River, and he saw the image of a vessel under the water. And this was uh, in the East Windsor, upriver up in the East Windsor area. And so we went out there, coordinated with the Department of uh, Energy and Environmental Protection, went out with, with a boat, and uh, we were able to – it was very low. The water was only up to my waist. We, because of OSHA, we had to wear life preservers. I was very embarrassed by the whole thing. But, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, I kind of think it it never happened
2: up, to Jacques Cousteau, right? He jumped <laughs> out of the boat and just kind of lands waist deep in water. It doesn't look cool when you do that, right? <laughs> That's
3: it. So we you know we, we did the, the mapping that Chris talked about on a low level from technology that they use today but we were able to map it record it we didn't remove anything from it but we have it in our files as one of the one of the but it was uh, it was found because of uh, aviation flying over
2: yeah so you know we just talked about the importance of preserving all this stuff uh, I would assume if it's possible to kick that up a notch Kevin with Native American stuff I would imagine again you don't want amateurs messing around with this you don't want amateurs thinking that they found a dugout canoe at the bottom of some pond somewhere
0: generally not but you know those uh, amateur archaeologists are our, our biggest asset too mm-hmm. i mean we wouldn't know half the things we know if people didn't come forward with what they found um what we usually do is encourage them as nick uh, had mentioned is to record it get a gps reading on it Take some photographs, you know. Send them in, but and send you know, them to, who should they send them to? Uh, the state archaeologists. I mean, I like to see it, so I, right. I, you know, send it to me too. You know, it's sort of a, you know, it's a dilemma sometimes. You yeah. know, um, you don't want to encourage it, but you also need that. Inf- you also need people like that who can give you the information.
2: Right. It's it's like the mastodon tooth. You know, somebody's yeah. going to find that. The question is, is he going to know what to do with it? Is he going to do the right thing? But you don't want those observant people to go away because that's there aren't enough of you guys to go find everything. All right. Well, on that uh, exciting note, why don't we... First of all, we're going to have to wrap up because we're out of time, but uh, could I have a big round of applause here for this terrific panel? Thanks so much. Nick Bellantoni, Christopher Goodwin, Kevin McBride... We can stick around here in Essex for a few questions afterwards, but also thanks to my terrific team uh, who uh, came down here and set up this thing. And also special thanks to the Connecticut River Museum for agreeing to host us too. This is a, if you haven't been here, this is just a beautiful place and they've got a replica of uh, the Adrian Block uh, ship. Uh, got this, the reason that we all speak Dutch and, and make chocolate and, and uh, raise tulips here in Connecticut is because obviously Adrian Block found us and, and claimed us for For the Netherlands. Uh, Anyway, thanks very much for coming out. Thanks for listening today and we'll be back with another show on the next day. Yay! I was a lad in a fishing town The old man said to me You can spend your life, your jolly life, just sailing on the sea You can search the world for pretty girls till your eyes are weak and dim, but don't go searching
1: for a mermaid son if you don't know how to swim Cause her hair was green as seaweed, seaweed. her skin was blue and pale, pale. her
3: face it was a lurker.